Thank you, Scott. Good morning, church. How are you doing this morning? That was weak. We just remembered Jesus' atoning work on our behalf, the basis of which causes us to gather together as a surrogate family in his name. We should be thankful, yo. How are you doing? All right. Hope Chapel is a joyful church, amen? All right. I'm ready to rock and roll. But before I start rock and rolling, I just have a short little announcement to bring to your attention. We're trying something different this weekend. Some of you may have noticed in your notes, there is a conspicuous absence of blank lines. Yeah, I know, right? Oh my gosh, this is unprecedented in the history of Hope Chapel. So please don't, you know, storm the stage in frustration, but I have supplied everything in the notes that you will need to take away from the message, and this is an experiment. Uh, My thought being that rather than being focused on capturing every little note and fill-in, it's better for you to be focused on the message and on the word as it's proclaimed. And so we're just going to try it out. Is that cool? You have no choice. So (laughs) you're literally a captive audience. So church, this morning uh, we are jumping back into Matthew's gospel. And specifically, we are entering into Matthew chapter 16, which is a very powerful chapter of the Bible. It's a very pivotal chapter of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 16, we see... Peter confessed faith in Jesus as the Christ, which is kind of like the disciples' high point of recognizing who Jesus is after following him around and observing him. In Matthew chapter 16, we also see Jesus speak of his church, which includes us, for the very first time. And finally, in Matthew 16, we see that Jesus communicates the true cost of discipleship, what it really means to follow him. His disciples would pick up their crosses, deny themselves, and follow him. That whoever would seek to save his life must, what? Lose it. But before all of those pivotal, climactic moments, chapter 16 opens with Jesus being attacked by two different groups of religious leaders, two different groups of religious thugs that have banded together to oppose him. And as they oppose him, they demand from Jesus a sign. Now, as we walk through this passage, as we engage God's word, as it speaks to us, as the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to listen and to understand and to internalize his word, I want you to keep in mind what a sign is. At the most basic level, what is a sign? A sign is something that points to something, right? It points to a greater reality or idea. Um, A sign could confirm something, right? A sign could signify something. A sign has significance. So with that being said, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, boot up your devices, open your apps, scroll to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to read just these four brief verses together. Amen? Matthew tells us in chapter 16, beginning verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Church, this is God's word. The central point of this passage today, 
The central point that Jesus is communicating to those two groups, to every people group throughout history, the last 2,000 years, the central point that Jesus is communicating to us today is that Jesus' resurrection signifies Jesus' reign. Jesus' resurrection confirms Jesus' reign. Jesus' resurrection points to Jesus' reign. Look with me at verse 1. Matthew narrates, setting the scene. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Just the first six words of this introductory verse, which sets the stage for this conflict, speak volumes. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. Who are the two parties that have come to Jesus? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Awesome, you're tracking with me so far. Who are they? Who are they? Well, I've supplied this in your notes. The Pharisees at the most basic level were like the fundamentalists of Judaism, right? Like people talk about Christian fundamentalists today. Well, the Pharisees were like the Jewish fundamentalists of their day. These guys are like the religious faithful. They're the suburban churchgoers. They're the middle class. They believe very strongly in what we refer to today as the Old Testament, what they refer to as the Tanakh, which was broken into three divisions, the law or the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings or the wisdom. So they held very strongly to the Old Testament. They believed that it was inspired by God. They promoted uncompromising obedience or fidelity to living according to Torah and living with a hope and expectation that was communicated by the prophets and demonstrating lives that were characteristic of the wisdom that was communicated in the writings. In addition, the Pharisees also believed in, worked on, and affirmed a whole body of oral tradition that they built around the Torah. Like, hey, let's, let's be really careful to obey all of God's laws. And so, in order to help protect us from disobeying God's laws, let's build some more protective laws and regulations around it, right? Because if we don't cross those protective boundaries, we certainly won't cross the ultimate boundary. But these Pharisees believed that, the, that that oral tradition was also inspired by God and on the same level as Scripture. The Pharisees believed in a literal resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees were waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come. The Pharisees resented the corrupting influence of Greek culture in the past that was rooted in Alexander the Great's campaign, what we refer to today, historians refer to as Hellenism. The Pharisees absolutely resented the shackles of Roman oppression and wanted the Messiah to come and throw off Roman oppression. And the Pharisees of all the different religious groups in Jesus' time probably are most like us today. They're the good old-fashioned, Bible-believing, Old Testament-thumping churchgoers. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, in contrast, they represent the wealthy aristocracy of Judaism. These guys represent the privileged class. They're connected. They have political influence. Unlike the Pharisees, they embrace Greek culture. They embrace Hellenistic culture. They cozy up to the Roman governors. They're politically connected. Unlike the Pharisees, they have a much more liberal interpretation of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, they don't even believe the whole Old Testament in the same way that the Pharisees do. Pharisees believe in the law and the prophets and the writings, which makes up of our whole Old Testament today. But the Sadducees, in contrast, only believed in the first five books, only believed in the Torah, only believed that was inspired 
And consequently, they also rejected this idea that there was any oral tradition surrounding the Torah that was valid or inspired at the same level as the Word of God. They denied a belief in any life to come, in a resurrection, or in any form of future existence. They did not believe in a coming Messiah, and basically they were like politicians in the White House with a thin veneer of spirituality. As a matter of fact, the Jewish historian Josephus speaks of them in a couple places, and he says that they win over the wealthy, but they do not have the people on their side. So they're the privileged elite, and they don't, they don't condescend down to the level of the common people. So as we approach the text, the first question we should ask, armed with that little bit of background information, that context is, what are they doing here together. Matthew gives us a little hint grammatically. Notice there's one the up on the screen. Not and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, which would kind of implicitly, you know, identify them as two groups that happened to be there at the same time. No, no, no. Intentionally, Matthew says, one the, the Pharisees and Sadducees came. They came as one unit. It indicates a kind of bond of opposition towards Jesus. They're united against him. We know that saying. We have it in our culture. The enemy of my enemy is my what? Right? But what about if the enemy of your enemy is also your enemy? When are you ever going to cozy up to your enemy? Only when that third enemy, only when that third party is a sufficient threat a greater threat. And so here you see two opposing parties coming together to oppose what they perceive to be the biggest threat to both of them. This is a very unlikely coalition. They are, as we like to say, unlikely bedfellows. It's kind of like if somebody emerged, you know, on the political landscape as we approach election, and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were like, yo, we got to team up and beat that guy, right? Unlikely, unlikely. I'm a guy, I like sports analogies. This would be like the Lakers teaming up with the Celtics. Yes, yeah. Or like even better, and God forbid this would ever happen, but this would be like USC cozying up to UCLA, you know? May it never happen. May it never happen. <clears throat> but for us to fully appreciate the gravity of this moment, for us to fully appreciate what is just beginning to unfold in this first verse of chapter 16, we need to go back in time. We need to go back two chapters. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, Mike, like you preach for a long time. Don't go backwards, keep going forwards. <clears throat> just track with me, track with me. In Matthew chapter 14, we see Jesus miraculously divide fishes and loaves, multiply them, and he feeds a whole multitude, over 5,000 men, not including women and children. So Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he turns right around and walks on water, and then he heals all the people who are sick in a certain region called Gennesaret. That's a pretty impressive resume for chapter 14, right? Like not just any ordinary guy. Then we get into Matthew chapter 15. And in Matthew 15, we see just like this chapter, just like chapter 16, 15 opening with a conflict account. And the Pharisees and the scribes come up from Jerusalem. They're like the big guns of Judaism, right? They're coming from the capital of Judaism, coming up from Jerusalem. They oppose Jesus they have this conflict, and Jesus uses that conflict as a teaching moment to tell them, to tell the crowds, and to tell the disciples that it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but it's what comes out of them. That out of the heart comes sin and all kinds of evil desires, and those are the things that separate us from God. After that controversy, after that account, Jesus withdraws, okay? Okay? He seeks a reprieve. And he withdraws into Gentile territory. So he's moving away from his ministry to Jewish people. And he's moving into 
Gentile territory. He's going to the outsiders. He goes to Tyre and Sidon, a place that was historically hostile and in strong opposition to God's people. And there he encounters a Canaanite woman who in that time and in that setting was the least likely candidate to be on the receiving end of a Jewish man's ministry. And they have this fantastic exchange. She cries out to him, takes the initiative, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And those words communicate so much. They communicate an apprehension, a belief in who Jesus really is. You're the Lord. You're the son of David. I may be a foreigner. I may not be Jewish, but I know that a Messiah was promised that he would be a descendant of David, and you're the son of David. So please, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Heal her. And Jesus responds, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa, harsh. Pastor Andrew preached on this, did such a tremendous job treating this text. Yet the woman, the woman presses through Jesus' appearance of reluctance. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus marvels at her faith, and he heals her daughter. This Canaanite woman demonstrates that believing Jesus comes before seeing his miracles. Jesus doesn't have to prove himself to her. She doesn't say, hey, I think you might be the guy that they're hoping for, but if you could just do this, 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 and this for me, then like my curiosity would be satisfied, then I'll ask you to heal my daughter. No, no, no. But then Jesus does this, demonstrating that he is so gracious and merciful and generous and good, he allows great crowds of Gentiles, of outsiders, the unclean people, to come to him in the wilderness, and he heals their lame, their blind, their crippled, their mute, and everybody in between. All of that with the result that Matthew tells us all those pagan Gentile people were giving glory to the God of Israel. Some revival broke out. And as if that's not enough, Jesus puts this massive, colossal, incontrovertible exclamation point on this whole sequence of miraculous events. All those foreign people that come to him in the wilderness that he ministers to and heals, he, he does another feeding miracle. He feeds the 4,000. He fed the 5,000 of his own people those lost sheep of the house of Israel, now he feeds 4,000 of those who are outside the house of Israel, demonstrating his openness to those who many would at that time have thought didn't have a chance with God. So not only does Jesus give that Canaanite woman her crumbs, but he gives all the foreign, unclean, lost pagan people a meal that is so overflowing with grace and generosity and goodness that they all eat each and every one of those men, women, and children, they all are satisfied, even so much that they had leftovers. Overflowing. Jesus demonstrates in these accounts that he provides without partiality to all who come to him believing. And he doesn't just provide what's minimal. He provides in abundance. No, he provides in superabundance. And that leaves us at the transition between chapters 14, 15, and 16. Jesus has done all of that, and it leads us to this moment, to these four verses. All of that miraculous activity Rumor of it, of course, spreading. And Jesus crosses back into Jewish territory when right away, these two groups of Jewish leaders come at him. They're there waiting. What do they do? Check it out. 
Second half of verse one. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven and to test him. They were there waiting. As soon as he crossed the border, they were there to test him. Why are they testing him? What's their motive? On the surface, it seems plausible, conceivable that the test could be uh, innocent. But these guys don't have a very good track record with Jesus. Nevertheless, what kind of test is it? In the New Testament, two different Greek words are used and translated in English as test. So, in the original language, two different words could be used for test. The first word communicates this sense of determining something's genuineness or drawing a conclusion about its worth, uh, testing it to approve it, determining its authenticity. James says in chapter 1, verse 3 of his letter, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. John talks about testing the spirits to see if they're truly of God. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians tells us that God tests our hearts. So there's a very constructive connotation built into this first word for test. But as you've probably guessed, that's not the word that is used in this moment and in this passage. The word that's used here communicates this sense of attempting to entrap through a process of inquiry or even to entice to improper behavior to tempt. How is this word used? In Luke chapter 4, Luke records Jesus tempting by Satan and Jesus answers Satan and says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In Matthew's account of Jesus' temptation, we're told that when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And just two verses later, Matthew identifies the supreme enemy, Satan, the devil, our adversary, using this very same word, the tempter. That's the word that's used here. Test. In this passage, in this context, is most certainly negative. You with me? Mark tells us in his parallel account for this passage in Mark 8 that when they came to Jesus and they tested him and they demanded a sign, that he sighed deeply in his spirit. <sighs> Exasperated. So here's this unholy alliance, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, and they demand a sign, but not just any kind of sign. What kind of sign do they demand? A sign from heaven. What's a sign from heaven? Well, the most basic level, it's something that's not a sign on earth. Jesus has been going around demonstrating all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles on earth. He's walked on water. He's multiplied fishes and loaves, right? He's Calm the seas. He's healed the sick. He's done all kinds of things in his earthly ministry. Not good enough for them. They want a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven is something meteorological. It's something apocalyptic. It's something cosmic. And these guys knew their Bibles. Think about this. Jesus' name is Yeshua which when translated from Hebrew is Joshua. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, in chapter 10, God himself manipulates the sun and the moon and causes them to stand still for about a day. Literally stops time in its tracks. We read in Joshua 10, 13, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. Now catch this. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Joshua cries out to God. God says, okay, stopping the sun, stopping the moon, freezing time so Israel can take care of business, conquer their enemies, and then move on with God's unfolding plan for them. Not a day since then had that happened. 
So here's these religious thugs, all puffed up because they're politically connected, because they're Bible scholars, and they're opposed to Jesus, and they come up to him, what's up, Yeshua? Show us. Let's see it. Yeah, maybe you can multiply some bread. Maybe somehow some people appear to be healed. But let's see you make the sun and the moon stand still. We want to see your power up there. That's arrogant. What's the only thing that's harder than making the sun and the moon stand still? How about making the sun and the moon? Yeah, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the eternal Son incarnate, that the second person of the Trinity came, took on human form, but in eternity past, he is the agent through which God created everything that is. So they ask from a sign from heaven, Jesus be like, yo, I created the heavens, right? But what's even harder than that? What's even harder than that? It's so relevant to our passage coming back from the dead, never to die again. Coming back to life eternally. Coming back to life forever. Defeating, vanquishing the ultimate foe, death. I have a question for you. Is it wrong for us to ask God for signs as we navigate our lives? I want to take a poll. No cowards. Everybody votes. Okay? I'm, I'm inviting full participation. Who thinks that it's okay to ask God for signs as we navigate life? Okay? All right. It's a pretty good number. Pretty good number. Who thinks that it's not okay? Come on. People aren't voting. <clears throat> All right. I want to spend a few moments camping out on this question because I think it's important for us. I think it's an important point of application. We need to distinguish between apocalyptic signs, cosmic signs, wonders, if you will, and leading signs, okay? We need to distinguish between signs and wonders and guideposts, okay? So when we ask, is it wrong for us to ask God for signs, I'm really asking, is it wrong for us to ask God for signposts along the way, for, for guideposts? <clears throat> well, the first thing I want to assert as we consider that question is that Scripture is necessary and sufficient for all of living. And so as we consider the possibility of confirming signposts or guideposts as we navigate life. We must be vigilant to always test every inclination, every thought, every word, every testimony, every potential signpost against the measure of God's word. This is what we stand on. After all, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we must be vigilant to be people of the word because Satan, the adversary, the tempter, is a master of deception. He knows how to manipulate our perceptions to lead us astray. We live in a climate culturally where people's moral values are based entirely on their subjective intuition. Whatever feels right to me is what I ought to do devil's having a field day with that ethic. I want you to think about something. God is condescending. He's condescending. Some of you are like, what? That doesn't sound right, Mike. I think, I think you may be going off the beaten path here. I want you to think about this for a second. We don't like it when people are condescending, right? Because when they're condescending, they talk down to us. When somebody's condescending, they are talking to us in such a way that they presuppose their superiority, right? And they're like, let me just come down to your level and help you sort this out. Ugh, hate that, right? We live in this culture where we hold very dearly to this idea that all men and women are created equal. Every race, ethnicity, language, everybody's created equal. So we hate the idea of anybody 
speaking in a condescending manner. Here's the thing. God is greater than us. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's good. He created us. He's eternal. We're sinful. We're born in rebellion to Him. Our, the default proclivity of the human heart is to justify itself, to tell God, you're not the boss of me. I want to figure it out on my own. I want to assert my agenda. Don't force yours on me. So God, being God, has every right to come down to our level and speak to us. Does that make sense? But get this. Whereas it's offensive and wrong for us to be condescending with each other, it is gracious and good and incredible that God would care enough to condescend to our level to reach us and to love us. And this idea of a condescending God is unprecedented and unparalleled in all of human and religious history. In ancient times, in present times, people thought that they had to manipulate capricious gods who they never knew what their disposition was going to be like towards them. They had to work their way towards those gods. They had to offer sacrifices to try to earn their favor. They never really knew or could predict what their standing would be with their gods, but not our God. Our God is the God who is there. Our God is the God who has come. Our God is the God who has said, the gap between you and I cannot be bridged by you. You are unable, and so I will come to you and make a way. Amen. The Christian faith, the God of the Bible, is absolutely unique in that respect. Back to our question. As a condescending God who is good and gracious and takes initiative and cares about us and loves us and redeems us, he accommodates himself to our weakness. And because of his willingness to accommodate himself to our weakness, yes, we can ask God for signs. Not apocalyptic signs where we say, God, prove it. I don't believe you unless you do this for me. But God, I need your help. I'm having a tough go of it. I just, I just need you to, I need you to give me a sign. I need you to show me, I need you to confirm for me that I'm in your will, that you really are present in these circumstances because my mom's got cancer or my child is terminally ill or my job is on the line, finances are thin, or any number of circumstances that threaten our security in this fallen existence, right? We can and should ask him to direct our steps. We can ask him to give us indicators that we are on the right path, always being vigilant to test every potential indicator against the authority of Scripture because it's necessary and sufficient and it is our guide in this age. But when we ask God for something like that, I want you to recognize that motive matters. Motive matters. When we come to God and we acknowledge Him as a God of initiative, a God who is gracious, a God who would actually condescend and hear our prayers, those petitions to Him presuppose belief in Him. Those petitions to him presuppose his goodness. They come from a place of faith. They come from a place of belief. They come from a place of trust. Not so with the demand for a sign from this unholy alliance. Their motive was malicious. Their spirit was critical. You've all heard the saying, I'll believe it when I see it or seeing is believing. But spiritually, that reverses cause and effect. Spiritually, it's truly the other way around. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. You'll notice the title of the sermon is Seeing is Not Believing. You see, seeing Jesus does not mean that you will believe in Him, but believing in Him means you will truly see Him. 
seeing Jesus' work as a sign from heaven will not lead these men to believe in Jesus. The truth is, they actually don't want a sign from heaven. They don't want Jesus to perform this sign. They're trying to entrap him. That's what that word test tells us. They want to see Jesus try and fail. You see, in their understanding, yeah, maybe some magicians could do some work and rumors could spread, blah, blah, blah. But no man could stand in their presence and stop the sun and the moon right in their orbital tracks. So if we ask him to do that, we'll have him. And once we disconfirm the beliefs about him, that he's the long-awaited Davidic heir, that he's the Messiah, then we can turn the crowds against him, we can get rid of him, we can put him to death, we can eliminate the common threat and continue going about our business in, in enjoying our power and our position and our influence unchallenged and unchecked. So they asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven, again, something cosmic, something meteorological. I always say it, don't ever challenge Jesus, especially in front of your peers or your coworkers. You're just asking for trouble. So they asked Jesus for a cosmic meteorological sign and in his astute punishing wit, Jesus responds to them with a meteorological analogy. Okay? Verse two, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. We're like, whoa, what does that mean? I don't understand the Bible. Like when I want to think about the weather, I just pull up my iPhone. <laughs> or for the less fortunate, my Android. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist. I just couldn't resist. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch a lot of heat for that one. <laughs> okay, listen. They didn't have mobile devices in the first century, right? So they had like basic common knowledge of weather patterns. We have a saying today that, that uh, mariners, sailors use, and it goes something like this. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors take delight. In other words, if you're out on the open seas, if you're out on the ocean, and you, and you see a red sky in the morning, chances are a storm is brewing and you're in for, for some bad times. If it's nighttime and you see a red sky, that would suggest meteorologically that it's going to be smooth sailing through the night. What's the point of Jesus saying this? Well, he responds to them in terms that they challenge him on. But this witty analogy is just a lead-in to his WWF smackdown on them, okay? <laughs> Verse 3b. You all know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You guys, you might be competent in basic meteorology, but you are catastrophically incompetent in discerning prophetically significant times. Jesus, first thing he says in Mark's gospel, the time is fulfilled. Everything that the Old Testament prophetically points to is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he's telling these guys, you guys are absolutely incompetent in discerning prophetically significant times. Previously, he called them blind guides of the blind. Paul talks about those who don't know God and are therefore by default opposed to God in chapter 4 of Ephesians. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Heart issue. Their demand for this sign from heaven expresses a stubborn, hard-hearted, unbelieving refusal to acknowledge the heavenly source of the multitude of miracles that Jesus had performed up until this very moment. They're just unwilling. They don't want him to be the Messiah. They don't want him to be their Lord. People don't want Jesus because they don't want Jesus telling them, this is my sexual ethic for you. People don't want Jesus because they don't want Jesus telling them, this is how I want you to steward my resources, which I'm entrusting to you. 
people don't want Jesus because they're convinced out of the default proclivity of their fallen hearts that they're basically good. And they don't want to hear anybody say that they're basically sinful. Not only that, but destined for judgment. And Jesus is going to tell them that in this very passage. Jesus preaches sin and judgment himself. But people don't want to hear that they need to be saved, that they need to repent. Their hearts are hardened. They're unwilling. How does Jesus fight them? Jesus fights these guys with the Bible. He responds to their challenge. He responds to their test by referring to Scripture. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Two <clears throat> Old Testament references here. Evil and adulterous generation and a reference to the book of Jonah. Jesus tells these guys who are the elite of Judaism, you guys represent, you're the faces of an evil and adulterous generation. In the Old Testament, God led his people out of captivity, out of Egypt. He delivered them. They wandered in the wilderness. They were referred to as the wilderness generation. And they turned from God. They worshiped idols. And even, and they complained, oh God, not more of this manna. We're tired of your provision. We should have stayed in Egypt. What were we thinking listening to you and to your servant Moses? God still faithfully leads them right up to the promised land, but they're like, we're not going in there. That's scary. There's like crazy big people. Right? And so God over and over again says, you know what? You're a wicked and evil and adulterous generation. The prophets in the Old Testament <clears throat> speak of Israel's spiritual infidelity to Yahweh in the same terms as marital infidelity. A vivid description of shifty hearts. They would have, that would have hit them hard. Evil and adulterous generation. No sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. A reference to the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. So Jesus is using the Bible. He's using scripture. <clears throat> no sign for you guys. And because they can't interpret the prophetically significant signs of the times, Jesus draws a significant prophetic typological sign right out of the prophet Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, the sign of Jonah at the most basic level is this. God sent Jonah to call some people to repent that they would be rescued from judgment. Jonah ended up in the belly of a whale descending into the deep. He was as good as dead. But then, by God's grace, Jonah was delivered from the belly of that great fish figuratively being delivered from death. And in the same way, Jesus says in Matthew 12, also referring to the sign of Jonah, that the Son of Man will descend into the grave but will be raised three days later. <clears throat> God loved the Ninevites, so he sent his servant Jonah. God loved the world, so he sent his only son. Jonah was swallowed by the great fish for three days and three nights. Jesus was swallowed by the grave for three days and three nights. Jonah ran from God's calling. Jesus embraced God's calling. Jonah died figuratively. Jesus died fully. Jonah was delivered from the belly of the great fish. Jesus was delivered from the domain of death. Jonas, Jonah was raised to life figuratively. Jesus was raised to life forever. Jonah resents the sinful Ninevites and can't stand that God relents and doesn't destroy them. Jesus loves and forgives sinners and welcomes them with open arms as brothers. <clears throat> Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Jesus' rising from the dead is the greatest sign of all, that he is the true king and that God's kingdom has arrived in him. Jesus' resurrection signifies Jesus' reign. But here at the end of this brief passage, we see a tragic irony, a great reversal. You see, Jonah reluctantly goes to the foreign people of Nineveh, yet they immediately respond and repent. 
In contrast, Jesus generously comes to his own people, not a foreign one, but they reject him and they refuse to repent. And so Jesus says, the second half of the sign of Jonah is that at the judgment, when the Ninevites are raised, they will stand witness in that judgment against that evil and wicked generation that rejected God's true prophet, God's own son, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our Savior. And then Matthew tells us, almost poetically, so simply, so straightforwardly, so he left them and departed. And the word that's used here literally means to leave behind. And so just as our passage opens with six loaded words, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, so it concludes with six loaded words, so he left them and departed. Jesus' physical act of leaving them demonstrates his definitive, ultimate rejection of them. And ironically, his departure is the only sign that they receive in this encounter. Those who reject Jesus get left behind. Those who reject Jesus are left to judgment. They're dead men walking, just waiting for their time to run out. We must be warned. We must not look back with an us versus them condescending view. We must not look back condescendingly on those Pharisees and Sadducees because there's a very real sense in which we could be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so we should be warned and we should seek God and we should search our hearts and we should ask, do I truly love Jesus? Do I truly believe Jesus? Or is my life putting him to the test? Do I really believe the gospel? Has my life really been transformed? Do I know Jesus or do I just know about Jesus? Church, Jesus' rejection signifies Jesus' reign. Jesus' resurrection confirms that he's coming back again. And 2,000 years of critical spirits have not been able to disconfirm the resurrection accounts. Jesus was raised and there was an empty tomb and for 40 days he appeared to his followers. And those events recorded in scripture have left a massive dent in the historical record, a giant God-shaped crater that historians cannot adequately explain even in a post-scientific revolution post-enlightenment, critical thinking age. The best explanation for what has happened in Christianity over the last 2,000 years, the best explanation for the events that are recorded, not just here, but in the objectively observable historical record from 2,000 years ago, the best explanation is that Jesus was raised. It is a matter of incontrovertible fact that the tomb was empty. It is a matter of incontrovertible fact that people believe that Jesus had risen and appeared to them. People all the time die for what they believe in, don't they? People fly planes tragically into into buildings because of what they believe in. People die for what they believe in all the time. But here's the thing. Nobody dies for what they know to be false. In all those first Christians, from the period of the eyewitnesses, were left and right dying brutal, 
gruesome martyrs' deaths because they were so convinced of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. They were changed. Their faith was unshakable, even in the face of the most brutal circumstances and intimidation tactics. And their testimonies have been handed down. And for 2,000 years, nobody has been able to explain how Christianity exploded and persists until today. Not propagated by the sword like Islam, rooted in history, unlike Buddhism, unlike other mythology. Christianity is utter, utterly unique. And the central sign, the confirming event, the thing we hold on to is what we celebrated just a few weeks ago in Easter. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection because that resurrection is a guarantee of, an authentication of, in a signifier of his reign, which will also mean he's coming back again. <clears throat> and finally, that great sign, his remarkable resurrection, is an unmistakable call to repentance and faith, and it is an unparalleled beacon of hope in our lives and in all of human history. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection of your Son. Jesus, thank you for condescending in the incarnation, becoming one of us, sympathizing with all our temptations and weaknesses in this life, yet living a perfect sinless life so that you could be lifted up, exalted on the cross as our atoning sacrifice. Thank you that your body was broken and that your blood was shed to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to you, to the Father. Thank you for salvation. Jesus, thank you for the gift of your life. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your word, which is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, which leads us to you. Thank you for your resurrection, which we look to as the sign confirming that you are coming back again for us and that we are not alone. I want to take just a brief moment.